0: Thank you, Lord, for the cross of Jesus, right? Yeah. Um, Oh, Michael got away already. Well, if you see him later today, tell him happy birthday, okay? It's his birthday. Um, I was asked to remind you again, um, I mentioned this last week, if you're interested in serving here and you're looking for a way to serve, we could really use some help with camera operators. It is not a hard thing to do. And Derek's had a few people sign up, but you could see him after the service. And he's back there in that sound booth, a handsome young looking young man who happens to also be my son, and he looks just like his dad. <laughs> um, see, Derek, if you want to serve in that way, he'll, he'll train you everything that you need to know. It's a great way, if you're going to be here at the service anyway, to be able to help out. And one other thing, other thing I was asked to remind you about is, this coming week, the clock changes, and time goes forward. So if you want to be on time for church next week, not just for the parking issues, but note that, I would love to pray with you before we jump into this text this morning, so let's take some time to go before the Father and ask Him to guide us through this passage. Would you join me? Lord God, I thank you for every single soul who's in this auditorium and every single soul who's joining us through broadcast of the virtual services right now. We pray that you would reach in to our hearts and cause us to come alive in respect to your Word and look for ways that You would motive, motivate us to adapt to Your expectations. So we, we ask that the power of the Holy Spirit would be felt by every single person, and that as we come to this point of receiving the elements of communion, that it would mean something even more to us today, understanding who we are to You and what You've done for us. So we pray that You would speak through Your Word now and let it be alive for us. We ask for this in Jesus' matchless name and all God's people said. Amen. I have much to cover this morning, so let me just uh, give you a broad overview. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 2 and chapter 3 this morning. laid a pretty good found work last week with Exodus 1. We saw last week that there was this phenomenal growth growing on in Israel's population, and that it was a fulfillment of what God had promised. He had made a commitment that the seed of Abraham would become as sand on the seashore. And indeed, they're multiplying not just by the hundreds of thousands, but by the millions. And remarkably, that phenomenal growth continued even though there was a new king who came upon the throne, a new pharaoh who was ruling over Egypt. And yet he had made this decision to exterminate the Jewish people, so he gave a decree to all of the people, and you see this decree here in verse 22 of chapter 1, then Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, every… and he's speaking of Hebrew children, every son who is born you are to cast into the Nile. So this new law that he decreed, the government decided they're going to exterminate all the Jewish young men, um, babies specifically, by throwing them into the Nile, this this provides the backdrop for the drama of what we find in chapter 2 when we come into it this morning, because God brings someone completely new on the scene, and He's so famous, even non-church people have heard of Him, and we happen to have a photo of Him this morning. (laughs) If you're younger than 40, that's Charlton Heston, okay? And he started in the Ten Commandments back in the 60s. And he is obviously very well-known by people around the world, even if they're not followers of God. They understand or they have at least heard of Moses. We tend to think of Moses as a fully grown man, with his arms outstretched over the Red Sea in defiance of Pharaoh, but we have to remember where he started out, and he started out as a slave child, as a boy who is a son of a slave, who is the grandson of a slave, who is the great-grandson of a slave, because Israel's been in bondage for 400 years by this point that he arrives, and he's born with his target on his back because Moses is a Hebrew, and therefore, he's got a death sentence right from the womb. So we pick it up in Exodus chapter 2, verse 1, where it begins this way. Now, a man from the house of Levi went and married a daughter of Levi. That, that means in the tribe of Levi. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was beautiful, she hid him for three months. By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months. It also says in Hebrews chapter 11. By faith Moses was born, he was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. So both the Old Testament and the New Testament say, he's a really beautiful kid. Question, if he was ugly, would they have thrown him in the Nile? No mom has ever thought that their baby was ugly. And I'm sure in this particular case... It's not just the physical beauty we're talking about, although in the New Testament, the Greek is very specific. In Acts chapter 7, it says in the King James Version, he was exceedingly fair, meaning in his physical appearance. So I wonder as we understand these definitions here, are we supposed to conclude that this baby was just too pretty to throw to the crocodiles? I don't think that's the case. The NIV actually renders that he was no ordinary child. How could they tell that from birth? How in the world could they possibly know? Well, all the text seems to indicate there's something beyond the looks here. And Hebrews 11 actually goes to the step where it says the parents acted in faith. Well, faith precludes the outward appearance. Faith goes beyond what you can see. Well, they acted in faith believing that there was something special about this child, and it compelled them to hide him. That The fact that he's beautiful relates to his physical appearance. But it also speaks to the quality of his heart. Now, we remember that he has a brother who's three years older than him, Aaron, who would just be a toddler at this point. And then Miriam, older sister. We're not sure if she's quite in the adolescent years or not. She's obviously a young girl moving towards adolescence, and she plays into this story. Verse 3 says this, But when she, meaning Moses' mom, could hide him no longer, she got him a wicker basket, probably made of papyrus reeds most likely, and covered it over with tar and pitch. Then she put the child into it and set it among the reeds by the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to find out what would happen to him. So it's very easy to imagine this mom and dad at home grieving and utterly despondent. They already lived 24 hours a day in slavery. The bondage is just horrible. And the marar word that was used last week that we saw for bitterness describes just what life is like day in and day out as a slave under the taskmasters. And now they're told they have to give up this gorgeous child. Clearly Moses' family has something else in mind other than child abandonment. There's obviously hope in what they're doing in the midst of this desperation. So they're not, when they build this little basket for him, which by the word is the exact same word that's used to describe Noah's ark, when they build this ark basket for him, they're not intending to push it out into the Nile River. They set it in the reeds up against the bank. Obviously in hope that somehow there's going to be an intervention and somebody's going to find this child. There's no expectation, however, I'm sure, that what happens next is what's anticipated. What happens next must have caused Miriam, his sister, to gasp. And we get really good detail simply because, obviously, it's coming from an eyewitness. This is written like an eyewitness account. We have to assume that Miriam told Moses later in life how when she was watching from the bank of the Nile. The royalty of Egypt came down to the banks of the Nile River. Now check this. Of all the people in Egypt, who would you least want to find the baby in the basket? Pharaoh's household, of course. That's the last people you would want to find this particular child. And then a member of Pharaoh's own household, let alone the daughter of the very man who ordered the extermination of the Jewish baby boys. But that's exactly who finds him. This is like Hitler's family finding a Jew hiding in the broom closet of his own house. It's that visceral. It's that graphic. New Hope, this also causes me to step back and say, who in the world could arrange this but our God? Who could do this but Him? No one that I know of. Next verse. Verse 5, the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the Nile with her maidens walking alongside the Nile. And she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her maid, and she brought it to her. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the boy was crying, and she had pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. This is also just like our God. The very same mode by which Pharaoh would destroy Israel and eliminate all the boys using, in other words, the Nile River, God once again takes what man intends for evil and turns it for good because our God is always at work and He's always in control. So the princess of Egypt arrives at the Nile to bathe exactly at the right moment. And she sees this basket and then sees the child and retrieves the basket. Check it. Pharaoh's decree is that all of the citizens of Egypt would destroy the baby boys of Israel. That certainly included his own daughter. Every single boy is to be killed. So it causes me to zoom out just a little bit. Pharaoh sits on a throne and he issues an edict. A government law is mandated from the government authority, and His law causes untold sorrow without it ever affecting Him, and He suffers no consequence of the decision whatsoever. But God is working behind the scenes. And God moves in the heart of Pharaoh's own daughter to look into a drifting basket and sees this baby child. And there's no mistaking whatsoever. This is a Hebrew child. She says it right out loud. And it's the very same child we just learned about. So her thinking is, forget the stupid law, because the maternal instincts within her tug at her heart. She says, I've got to rescue this child. Now today, Egyptologists and archaeologists who who lean towards a direction of skepticism toward the Bible, they'd say very unlikely that a member of the royal family would actually go down to the Nile River to bathe, let alone be found skinny dipping down there. But the reality is they do acknowledge that on occasion the members of the royal family would go down to the Nile River and do what they called ceremonial washing and they would enter the river because they worshiped the Nile River as one of the gods small g and they believed it brought life and so you find this family down there the bible records that she's actually there so i'm going to say she's actually there verse 7 then his sister said to pharaoh's daughter so I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women, that she may nurse the child for you. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, "Go ahead." So the girl went and called the child's mother, and she's going to bring mom right, right to the scene. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, "Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages." So the woman took the child and nursed him. Now I find this is just incredibly humorous for this reason. There's no doubt that this princess is pondering what to do when Miriam arrives. And before long, her mother comes on the scene, Moses' own mother, and she's going to get paid to raise her own son from Pharaoh's checkbook. How great is that? This <laughs> just awesome. Only the God of the Bible could arrange these things. But here's a very somber component of it. Moses' mom is the only young mom in all of Goshen who has a living baby boy. How sad is that? One lone child, the rest are all being thrown in the river day after day, they're being killed because of Pharaoh's edict. Verse 10 we find, the child grew and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son and she named him Moses and said, because I drew him out of the water. At what age does she bring him to the palace? likely three years of age, that was the age of weaning during this period of time, so probably within that range. But going forward, what we know for sure is that God has a plan for the education of this child. He expects this child to be instructed in all the ways of the Egyptians, and He's going to be instructed right at the feet of the Egyptians, which greatly enhances His future leadership skills. We find this from the New Testament from Acts chapter 7, verse 22. Moses was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians, and he was a man of power in word and deeds. So adopting Moses means bringing him into the palace life. And so he's going to get favored status. And favored status means special education for all of the government operations. And we know this today historically about the Egyptian people. That means he's going to be trained in palace etiquette. He's going to be trained in science, in mathematics, in engineering. In military operations. That's all the things that they were really skilled at. So check it. Living inside Pharaoh's palace, right in his own house. Thank you. <clears throat> Did you sense I had a need? Sorry if it's annoying. I seem to have caught a cold this last week. However, it helps me to say Moses really good. <laughs> Living inside. Pharaoh's own palace, there's a Hebrew boy, and he's supposed to be dead, and yet he's being trained in all the ways of the Egyptians, and it's right under Pharaoh's own foot. And he's getting all the training and all the education on how Egypt works internally, so this protecting and this nurturing and this equipping of Moses is a beautiful reminder of a New Testament truth that you should remember week in and week out. Paul expresses it, expresses it in Ephesians chapter 3. Look with me on the screen. Now to him, who? God. Now to him, our God, who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, which should remind us, don't put limits on our God. I have to remind myself of all all those truths. What a gracious, loving, involved God that we follow. He gives the parents of Moses far beyond than what they could ever thought possible, which really should be challenging the limitations that we put on God. That He can do far beyond, Scripture says in Ephesians 3, beyond all that you even imagine. And I can imagine a lot. God says, I can go so far beyond that. Don't put limitations on me. Verse 11, Now it came about in those days when Moses had grown up that he went out to his brethren and looked on their hard labors. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. So he looked this way and that, and when he saw that there was no one around, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. If you're new to church, it, it means he killed him, and there he's trying to bury the body if you're not familiar with the story. And the particular word that's used here, naqad in the Hebrew language, it, it means to beat someone so severely, you're beating them within a, an inch of their life, and obviously in this case, he took this individual's life. That same word will be used again in just a moment. Somewhere along the way, Moses has been made aware that he's Hebrew. Now, he's nearing 40 years of age when he decides to go and visit the Hebrews and see what's going on in their conditions. We learn this from Acts chapter 7, verse 23, but when he was approaching the age of 40, it entered his mind to visit his brethren, the sons of Israel. So Moses knows he's Hebrew and he cannot help himself but identify with his fellow Hebrews. They're in distress and they are suffering. Exodus 2.11 says, he looks on their hard labor, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. And this means more than to visually see. It, It means that when he sees, it moves him to the point of distress. So he's emotionally attached to what he's seeing going on here, which tells us Moses shares God's heart. He may not know the God of the Bible yet, but he certainly understands that God has great sympathy for the oppressed. And God looks upon the oppressed with grievous heart. That's exactly what you find Moses doing. Now, to be sure, this Egyptian officer is not disciplining the slave. The Hebrew language actually uses the exact same word here, the word nakah that you just saw when it treats this individual saying, he's likely beating him to death. We don't know how close to death he is, but there's oppression going on. So I'm compelled to ask this question. Why does Moses think that that's the best course of action? He's a member of Pharaoh's royal court. He's a prince of Egypt. Why doesn't he just say, stop? Why does he think he has to kill this individual? Well obviously there's an act of rage going on and, and there's obviously the heat of passion takes over in this moment. But also, he's got military training. He's trained in all the ways of the Egyptians. Probably he's a pretty powerful individual. For some reason, it results in death. And for sure, there's an attempt here to exact vengeance. How do I know that? Look with me on the screen again. Acts 7, he defended him and took vengeance for the oppressed by striking down the Egyptian. But then there's this little detail added in verse 25. And he supposed that his brethren understood that God was granting them deliverance through him. But God's pretty clear in the Old Testament and the New Testament. He says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Moses has taken vengeance upon himself. So I'm not really sure what to call this. It definitely goes into the category of homicide, and for sure it's premeditated. Should we go as far as to call it murder? Interacting with one of the attorneys who attends here this last week, Told me he's involved in a lot of murder cases, and you want to be very careful to jump to the conclusion that there's actual murder going on here. Definitely there's homicide going on here, but we know it's premeditated because of what it says in verse 12. It says very specifically, he looked this way and that, meaning he's gauging whether or not other people are around him. Premeditated. Why the detail? Why is that important? Well, it not only gives us insight into the flow of the story, but there's this element. I suspect, and I'm just speculating here, that Moses very likely had a very rapid increase in his blood pressure when God gave him the Ten Commandments at Sinai. And he arrives at the commandment, thou shalt not kill. And in the Old Testament, the word kill used in the Ten Commandments is murder. I'm I'm not trying to implicate him in murder or mischaracterize what Moses has done here. Rather, here's what I am emphasizing, this aspect. Our God uses flawed people. Amen? Our God uses flawed people. He uses you. He uses me. It's as old as time. God uses flawed people to do His work. I'm also not trying to excuse Moses' action, but just let me push this just a little bit further. We're told this in Hebrews chapter 11. By faith Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh, Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. So the pleasures and the treasures of Egypt are fading into the rearview mirror for him. He's willingly made a decision, and he sees himself as being able to help liberate God's people. Hebrews 11 means this, he has already identified himself with his people before he went out to look on the affliction of his people. So Hebrews 11 informs me that the reason Moses actually even visited his brethren is because of his decision to identify with them and even suffer with them, which means this. He didn't lose his status with Pharaoh as Pharaoh's grandson because of the killing. He had already given that up willingly. but. Because he attempted to do what many of us have also already tried to do, in other words, act on God's behalf, Moses has to learn that deliverance comes from God's hand, not from Moses' hand. And if you haven't discovered it yet, you cannot force God's hand. You cannot force God's timing, you cannot force God's purposes. It has to happen in His way according to His purposes. Verse 13, He went out the next day, and behold, two Hebrews were fighting with each other. And he said to the offender, why are you striking your companion? But he said, who made you a prince or a judge over us? Are you intending to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and said, surely the matter has become known." So the prince of Egypt has taken a life in rage, and that can't be kept a secret. Even if his motivation is right, his method is completely wrong, and he knows now it's, it's public information. So he decides that he better exit Egypt quickly, especially when the wanted posters go up. Exodus 2 verse 15a, when Pharaoh heard of this matter, he tried to kill Moses. So what starts out with a bang, meaning he was rescued from the Nile, he was raised in the palace, what starts out with a bang seems to be ending in a whimper, which is the exact opposite of Joseph's life. Joseph is raised to power and he brings deliverance. Moses has to end up running for his life. Go back to verse 15 again. When Pharaoh heard of this matter, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from the presence of Pharaoh. For Moses, no longer does Egypt represent leisurely boat rides down the Nile, no more exotic meals, no more extravagant clothing. It means slave masters, it means bondage, and it means death. Now someone reading this account for the first time, perhaps brand new to church, maybe never heard this story, without any knowledge of where this story is going would conclude that they should have a great sense of disappointment at this point because Israel's future for a people is really, really bleak. At one point, Moses seems to be the solution. Raised in the palace of Pharaoh, just like Joseph, but now he has to run from the country and it seems like he's fading out of the picture entirely and you would expect his life to end in absolute obscurity. But in spite of all the circumstances, what we've been learning over the last couple weeks is that God is always at work, God is always in control, and He's acting powerfully behind the scenes, and He is very aware of our situations. Go with me to verse 23. Now it came about in the course of those many days that the king of Egypt died, and the sons of Israel sighed because of the bondage, and they cried out, and their cry for help because of their bondage rose up to God. So God heard their groaning and God remembered His covenant with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. God saw the sons of Israel and God took notice of them. Now, those many days that it refers to, he's talking about while Moses is living in Midian. He's run away. He's hiding in a foreign country. During those many days when he's living in Midian, we'll come back to that in just a moment. I want to resolve or address a theological issue with you before we move further back into the story by asking this question, can God forget? Well, He can forget your sins. He says out loud, I forget them and I remember them no more. But can you actually be an omniscient God, meaning all-knowing, if He's unaware of anything Well, let's look at the way these words were used because it says God remembered, which implies that He's forgetting. If we use the English word remember, well, the word remember here, the Hebrew word is actually zakar, and it's actually saying that God acknowledged. It's not as though He forgets, but He came to the decision that He would acknowledge the commitment that He made to Abraham. That's not just the only English word that's used there that's confusing. It also says that God noticed or took notice of them. Well, what's that word? That's talking about understanding, meaning God understands you. He hasn't forgotten and He understands exactly what we're going through. He understands everything because He's omniscient. So the question within the question is this, how then is God moved to act on behalf of His own? Well, by his own promises. In other words, by his own Word, the Word of God, the Word of God that made a commitment to Abraham moves him to make action towards the people that he loves. Think of it this way, it's not as though an angel had to come and whisper in the ear of God and say, hey, remember that thing that you said to Abraham 400 years ago? Well. No, that's not it at all. God doesn't forget. God cannot forget because forgetting is weakness and there's no weakness in God. Even though in multiple verses God says He forgets your sins. What's He referring to there? This is really important to you today where you're at. Whatever sins you committed last week, whatever sins you will commit in the coming week. When God says that He has forgotten your sins, it means He's not holding sins against you." Look with me on the screen at God's own statement, Isaiah 43, 25. "'I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins.'" So hear this, church, especially if you're new to church. Once your sins are forgiven you by God, they will never be held against you. Your past, your present, and your future sins, it's called the finished work of Jesus. The finished work of Jesus on the the cross means that He wiped out all your sins, past, present, and future. That's why He could say it is finished when He's hanging on the cross. It's the finished work of Christ. Therefore for you this morning, if you feel forgotten by God or you feel insignificant, God is quick to remind us in His own Word that He does not neglect and He does not forget. And there is way more going on here than just the mental acknowledgement that, oh yeah, I had a commitment to Abraham. That's not it at all. It actually includes performance. So we put four verbs in your notes this morning. You'll see them up on the screen as well. Look at these four. God heard, God remembered, God looked, it's the word saw that we just described, and God knew, in other words, He noticed. Now I'm going to ask you to do this. Hold these theological truths right in the front of your mind, and we're going to dive back into the story and allow these words to come out to us. Now, to this point in time, Moses has lived the life of luxury in the Egyptian palaces, highly developed civilization. We understand their engineering is off the charts. We still have their structures in existence today. Mathematics is something to be held in awe by these people. Their understanding of science, their understanding of medicine. Moses not only lived that life, but he's highly educated in that life. According to Acts chapter 7, Moses actually was schooled in all the learning of the Egyptians. That guy... That same guy is on the run for his life from Pharaoh. And I will argue with you next week that I believe it's Moses I. I'll come back to that next week to present that to you. So his own grandfather is hunting for him. Back to verse 15 again. When Pharaoh heard of this matter, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from the presence of Pharaoh and settled in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. Now the, Then the shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and helped them and watered their flock. When they came to Ruel, another name for him is Jethro, "...when they came to Ruel, their father, he said, "'Why have you come back so soon today?' So they said, "'An Egyptian delivered us from the hand of the shepherds.' And what is more, he even drew the water for us and watered the flock." He said to his daughters, where is he then? Why is it that you have left the man behind? Invite him to have something to eat. Now, clearly Moses has no use for bullies in his life. We've already seen evidence of that. And he has this innate desire to rescue people. He's trained in Egyptian warfare. And he's going to use his military skills to rescue these women. He's going to enforce this lady's first rule. Now, when you think of Midian, you have to think of the eastern shore of the Red Sea. So think of Egypt geographically in your mind. Think of the Red Sea on the eastern side of Egypt, but go beyond the Red Sea, and then you're in the land of Midian. And the Midianites were people who descended from Abraham also, because when Abraham's wife Sarai died, he remarried Keturah, and Keturah had sons. Those sons became the Midianites. So these are like shirt-tail relation to Moses, way, way removed by hundreds and hundreds of years. And now Moses is invited into a new beginning because he's met a woman at a well. It leads to marriage with one of the seven daughters. It says this in verse 21, Moses was willing to dwell with the man, and he gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses, Then she gave birth to a son, and he named him Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land, which is a really significant detail. Names his firstborn son with this title, Gershom, that reminds him that he's an alien and a stranger in a foreign land. Even though he's going to be living there 40 years, he still thinks of Egypt as his homeland, which captures for us his state of mind, what's really going on. See, this is a, a low point in the life of Moses. He's a lowly shepherd on the backside of the desert. And in a matter of just weeks, he's gone from the palace to the pasture, and he finds himself in grazing fields, listening to the bleeding of sheep. That might sound really peaceful and pastoral to you, unless you've hung out with sheep. And that bleeding can be really annoying, I'm here to tell you. We've had sheep at our house, and they would scream at me, well, that's because they're hungry. And Moses is with him day in and day out, and week after week, and year after year, and we're told it goes on for 40 years. So just like Joseph as a slave for 13 years, God is going to use these years in Moses' life to prepare him for kingdom work, which brings us to a truth. God's pattern of equipping us isn't that He suddenly downloads everything that we need and all the tools. It takes time to equip us. And God's method to equip Moses is going to be solitude and humble service. So the next day starts out like any other day. You have a leather skinned shepherd who's 40 years working in the field and he expects nothing out of the ordinary. No doubt wishing for something to be different than the day before. The monotony has to be off the charts after 40 years of shepherding. I'm thinking life has become all too predictable. He knows all the best grazing areas. He knows all the best water holes they are etched in his mind. And an occasional snake is the only thing that provides any excitement for him. My experience, church, is that life-altering events happen very few times in our life. And when those life-altering events are the result of encountering something, coming face to face with something that is disproportionately more dominant than yourself. It causes a consistent reaction on the part of humans. We don't have to be taught the response. It is absolutely intuitive. Rather than me describing it for you, let's read what I'm just stating. Verse one of chapter three. Now Moses was pasturing the flock of Jethro his father-in-law the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, otherwise known as Sinai, the mountain of God. So we have a guy looking for really rich pasture. He's looking for something different. He faces the east, typically, like most of the Semitic people. That's how they would get their compass orientation. In the morning, face the east, the rising of the sun, deciding which way to go. In his case, he's going deep into the wilderness. Now, it was not common for individuals who were shepherds to go into wilderness areas. Most of them would only stay within a day, maybe at the most, of their home base. But we're finding he's going deep into the wilderness, and something in this wilderness catches the eye of Moses, and it snaps him out of these mundane, wandering thoughts. There's a fire in the distance, and in and of itself, that would hardly be cause for much interest. But as time passes... He notices that this thing is not being consumed. Verse 2, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush, and he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. So Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight, why the bush is not burned up. leb I think is the way the word is pronounced in the, in the Hebrew language, but picture this in your mind. When it says a blazing fire. Fire, um, the word that's used there is actually describing the tip of a spear. So when you think of the tip of a spear, you think something that fans out and comes to a point. Well, it's definitely describing that, but it also, the tip of a spear is something that's gleaming in the sunlight. And this word, lebahabah, means something that's pointed, shaped, and gleaming brilliantly. So this is what Moses is looking at. And since there's no appointments in his schedule, he's got time on his hands, he decides, this bush has my attention, he's going to set out for a look. We're told that the angel of the Lord appeared to him, and every time I find reference to the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, it's referring to the pre-incarnate arrival of Jesus, meaning before God the Son became Jesus the man, before He emptied Himself, according to what the New Testament says. We find multiple appearances of the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament. One was to Abraham before God visited Sodom and Gomorrah. The angel of the Lord appeared to Abraham, and we understand that to be a pre-incarnate arrival of Jesus. So God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, before He condescended and became Jesus, appears in this setting. Wild acacia bushes are really common in this area around Sinai, still there to this day. They're very, very brittle. And in certain seasons, they can spark and burst into a short blaze. So a fire in the desert is is not abnormal. What Moses doesn't know is that while this bush is very common, it's what's at the core of the fire that is not common, it's far from ordinary. And the closer he gets, the more extraordinary the scene. I'm sure that if Moses were alive today, he'd be amused and entertained by all the attempted explanations at the burning bush. There's been a lot of them, like St. Elmo's fire, a glow of electricity, or there was a refraction of a rock that blew down that had some gypsum in it, and it caused the bush to light on fire. Or one of my favorites is that it was a a bush with red leaves on it, and the sun hit it just right. Okay, all of those attempted reasons for explaining away the burning bush completely dismisses Moses' 40 years of experience in the desert. We're told that he said this is a marvelous sight. This is absolutely strange to him. So for this guy who's used to a mundane life, this is something extraordinary. Now often the Bible speaks of fire in conjunction with God's holiness. More specifically, in conjunction with God's anger towards sin when fire appears on the scene. Let's go forward. Verse 4, when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, I'll try it with my cold voice, Moses, Ah, that's not working, sorry. Moses, you're trying to clear my throat for me, aren't you? Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. All attempts at trying to explain the bush aside, I can confidently say, after many years of wilderness experiences, including some really strange encounters myself, I have never heard a bush talk. (laughs) I'm guessing you haven't either. And neither had Moses. This is the first time it's ever happened. And the fascination of this moment is amplified by the sudden presence of this voice. If you're new to church, you need to understand that when you read the Bible, when you come across miracles like this, miracles are always used to authenticate the message of God. They're never intended as a sideshow. They endorse God's Word. So God chooses a bush. And He simply waits and allows Moses' time to become sensitive to something very insignificant. The God of glory could have easily set ablaze all of Mount Sinai. And you're going to see Him do that in Exodus chapter 20 and then again in Exodus chapter 30. He can and He will do that. His awesome holiness can do that. But here, He just uses a simple bush which impresses me with the reality of all the simple ways God has used to get my attention over the years. How about you? All the simple insignificant things that God draws into our path. Now this very quickly transitions into a curiosity and then it moves from curiosity from that into an encounter with the living God. Verse 5, Then he said, Do not come near here, Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. He said, also, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Then Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Let me go back to what I said a moment ago. When you come face to face with something disproportionately more dominant than yourself, it causes a consistent human reaction. It's intuitive. It produces within us an instant awareness that you are utterly mortal, and you begin to fear for your life. On multiple occasions, Peter spoke of a very similar incident happening to him. He was very aware that he had come face to face with God. Matthew chapter 17 captures the setting very clearly that Peter speaks about later in life. Let me show this to you on the screen. A bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice came out of the cloud and said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell fell face down to the ground and were terrified. Surrounded by the power and the majesty and the holiness of God, and this voice thundering magnificently, it drives Peter, James, and John to the ground. They can't but help respond that way because of what they have just encountered, intuitively they want to go into a fetal position. In the face of such overwhelming awesomeness and holiness and and crushed with this instinctive awareness of their own mortality, humans instinctively hide their faces. In some cases they curl up into fetal positions, very near the end of his life. Peter tried to describe the moment that you just read about. Let me show this to you in 1 Peter, or 2 Peter 1. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales. That's a fancy way of saying we were not lying. When we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when He received honor and glory from God the Father such an utterance as this was made to Him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with Him on the holy mountain." I sense when I read that Peter's struggle to take the things of heaven and describe them and put them in earth terms so that we mere mortals can comprehend this moment. In Exodus 3, God is teaching Moses what He taught Peter, James, and John, what He taught Isaiah, that coming into the presence of God demands a heart adjustment. So God has to immediately set up boundaries for this man who has tried to do things on his own terms. So in verse 5, He says, do not come any closer. And right out of the gate, you and I are reminded that God is completely separate and distinct from mankind, but also where God is present, what is ordinary becomes holy. This bush is not holy. Ten minutes before, it was a bush. Ten minutes after, it's a bush. People are still today looking for the remnants of that bush, thinking that they could worship it. It's God's presence that makes a thing holy. It's God's presence in you, new hope, that makes you holy, even if you don't feel holy in this moment. If you are in Jesus Christ and God is in you, you are holy to God. He sees you as holy because He has removed your sin, past, present, future. That's what Jesus does for you. So the very next thing God says to Moses in verse 5 is, take off your shoes which should be well known to the Egyptians because Egyptians going into temples, they took off their shoes. People in other parts of the world, when they enter into holy places, they would take off their shoes just like we do hats. Gentlemen, remove your hats for the playing of the national anthem. You hear it in stadiums all over the nation. But what we do as a polite gesture meant something different to the people of the East. The Eastern mindset is not the same as the Western. With us, it's an expression of politeness. Now, to be sure, removing the sandal is absolutely one way of confessing Moses' utter unworthiness to be in God's presence, but it is much more than that, church. It is so much more. Moses is being told to remove what man has made. He's standing on holy ground. God says, you're about to come into my presence. You can't wear what you've made. I'm often asked by people who are new to New Hope, why do we have individuals come to the tables for communion that you're going to participate in in just a moment? The reason we do that, and it doesn't make us exceptional from other churches. Other churches have their style, but we started doing this in 2007 because of this. When you leave your seat and come to the trays in the back or in the front to pick up the elements, the only thing you're bringing to the table is yourself. There's nothing wrong with passing this raise down the aisle, but for us it was this simple gesture. You're bringing yourself to God and what He did for you. So God says, Moses, you've got to take off your shoes. You've got to take off what you've made, what you bring to the table. Now I doubt that Moses bent over just to unloosen his sandals. I'm guessing like many people just speculating here, I'm guessing he collapsed and fell to the ground. But we do know this for sure, in response, we're told in verse 6, Moses hid his face. Look at it again. Then Moses hid his face, for he's afraid to look at God, because looking at God would cost him his life. Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah records that he was in the presence of God, that he was caught up into heaven, and he said, Behold, I looked, and I saw the train of his robe filling the temple." The longer the train of the robe, the greater the royalty. God's train of His robe was so big it filled the entire temple. And then Isaiah recorded that the thresholds of the doors began to shake. And the seraphim called out, holy, 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 holy. And Isaiah's response was, I'm a dead man. I stand in the presence of God. Behold, my eyes have seen the Most High. That's a normal human response when you're standing in the holiness of God. Why would Moses hide his face? God's teaching Moses, you come into my presence. As much as Moses may have wanted to see God's glory, when he realizes that he's in the presence of a holy God and he immediately grasps the depth of his own unholiness, intuitively and instinctively, He fears for his mortal life. And New Hope Church, in essence, this captures why we're doing communion this morning. This captures the essence of the human problem, and it's found right here in Exodus chapter 3. You and I, we were built to be in the presence of God. Adam walked with God in the cool of the day. Before the fall, before sin changed everything. We were wired to be in God's presence, but our fall into sin changed it all. And in an unholy, unredeemed condition, it is not safe for us to come into the presence of God. We cannot and we will not survive So someone new to church might have to ask, maybe someone will ask you this in the course of your life. How in the world then can someone who's unholy ever survive a direct encounter with God? Because the Bible says we will all stand before God one day. Now I know many people have jumped to the conclusion that they think they can earn their way, that they can stand before God because of the works that they've done. They will be utterly shocked to learn that that does not do it. It is not safe for us to come into the presence of a holy God without Jesus Christ our Lord. Without Him, you've got nothing. Now, for a Christ follower, there is nothing more comforting than the thought of being in the presence of God because Jesus has made us worthy. If you agree with that, say amen. Amen. I'm glad that I'm among people who believe that because you're about to lift the cup. Now, I'm not suggesting that you won't be stunned into silence in God's presence, and I'm not suggesting that you won't still fall down before Him. But this is what I do also know. For the one who does not know Jesus, there is no thought more terrifying or more horrifying than standing before God. And in case you were wondering, the God of the Bible still does hate sin, even though culture says differently. He does not change with culture. But the great news is this. The great news is that while God hates sin, He does not hate you. God so loved the world that He sent His one and only Son that whoever would believe in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. That Son of God has a name and His name is Jesus, King Jesus to be more accurate. And He's the one that we get to celebrate this morning through the cup and through the bread. So I'm going to transition over to communion with you. If you personally haven't ever professed Jesus Christ as your Savior, you can do it right now. In the quietness of your seat, you can participate in communion with this church this morning for the first time in your life as a believer in Jesus Christ. All you have to do is offer up your willingness to be humble before Him and say, God, I know that I'm a sinner. You know what? I'm not even going to rush through it, church. I'll just take a minute right now. There's probably someone in this auditorium right now that does not know Jesus as their Savior. If you want to receive Jesus, just pray with me this way. Everybody close your eyes. Let's just pray together. Pray this way. God, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I need Jesus. I invite him into my life to be my Savior. Father, I need the new life that you've promised me. And I surrender my life to him. Amen. If you're confused about anything that I just told you, come and see me after the service. I would be honored to talk with you. I'd be thrilled. i will be right down here in the front. Let me read to you these instructions for people who do take communion. And by the way, if you're not a member of New Hope, you don't have to be a member to take communion. Anybody who's here who is a believer in Jesus Christ, you're welcome to participate in communion here. This is what we do. We read this paragraph together. And you're allowed time to examine yourself, Come up, pick up the elements, take them back to your seat, and I'll talk you through the rest. But Hear me on this. 1 Corinthians 11, Paul wrote this, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which He was betrayed took bread. And when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way He took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in My blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of Me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes." Just to be very, very clear, what you're about to do in picking up the elements and ingesting them into your body is a public proclamation that you believe that Jesus died for you, that He took away your sins, and that He's coming back again. That's what Paul just said there. When you drink the cup. You proclaim the Lord's death until He comes, that He died for you and that He's coming again. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Here at New Hope, we allow this time for you to examine yourself, spend time talking to the Father. You've got something to confess, do it now. Do it in the quietness of your seat. And when you're ready, come up to the tables. Pick up the elements, take them back, and I'll talk you through the rest.